One of the purposes of the Sermon on the Mount is inviting his disciples to a new way of living. When you think of our actions, when you think of our motives, when you think of our affections, there's this invitation to live within the kingdom of heaven. And that just zeroes in and it hones in so often. But I want to read the text here for this morning. I'm using the English Standard Version. But let's begin Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 and 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him on the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, one of my theological beliefs is this. The world out there looks through a set of rose-colored glasses. And they believe some things that I think is deeply flawed when you begin to throw the scriptures at their beliefs. And here's one of the beliefs that they have. That if you just educate everyone with the right information and you can legislate with just the right rules, and you put them in place, and poof, evil goes away. You can control this world. And the challenge, you look out there right now in the Middle East, and you go, it's not working. But here's what i got to tell you. Evil is never going to go away until God's final redemption occurs. But as followers of Christ, I I think the dilemma that we have, we kind of look at the evil and we go, oh, woe is me. And I would say this, I think we need to be the most realistic and optimistic when it comes to a world that's falling apart. I don't believe that we should wallow in pessimism and be consumed with when those that are calling good evil and evil good. I don't think we have to worry about it. Why? We have the solution. We understand redemption. We recognize that a Savior has conquered the cross and has overcome sin and evil. And in one sense, we got the secret handshake. To live above that. And, but there's another piece here. And, and, and. i got to say that three times. We have also been given power to live differently than the world and when it's falling apart around us. 
See, he invites us to live even in an evil world, to live in this, what he calls the kingdom of heaven. And he gives us, he wants to give us power to live abnormal lives. Not just lives like the rest of the world lives. But the power is not physical power, it's spiritual power. And that's so different than how the the world understands that whole issue of power. Matter of fact, when they think of power, the world out there, I I think they kind of go like this. The ones with the biggest guns win. Or the biggest bombs or the most planes will win. Maybe even to twist a little bit for the United States, a little bit different. Uh, you know, we don't have a lot of conflict, that turmoil on our soil, but here in the United States, I think this is how power goes. The one with the most votes has the most power. See, the one with the most votes gets the right to decide what is good and what is evil. And, And catch this, that issue of Deciding what is just and what is fair and what is good plays in deeply to the text today. Here's, though, what the world doesn't get. It's the word depravity. And I don't know if you know that word. It's the idea that understanding that our heart is deeply, before Christ, is deeply enslaved to sin and its power. So the world looks to create a system without the power of God, to determine what's right and what's wrong. And fundamentally, it's a word that maybe some of you know or don't know. Let me put a word up on the screen. It's the word ethics. See, they bring power into the ethics of going, we get the right to decide what is the ethic. Well, here's a definition. That branch of philosophy dealing with the values relating to human conduct with respect to the rightness and the wrongness of certain actions and to the goodness and the badness of the motives and the ends of such actions. See, that's how the world, they they hold on to that. We have the right to define what is good and what is evil. And, And do we realize, though, that that ethic of wanting to control, wanting to decide what's just, wanting to decide what's fair, really comes from the flesh. From, from the side of us that's kind of anti-God. See, we love to compare. I, I wanna, for example, I'm going to use an illustration here. Let me put a picture on the screen here. Here's a bowl of ice cream. Some of you maybe had this last night. Um, But if I were to take my twins, granddaughters that are twins, and Brooke and Abby, if I took Brooke, put her at the table, and the two of them were sitting next to each other, and I put this bowl of vanilla ice cream in front of her. Brooke, here's your ice cream. And then I... Abby sits down, and I give her a bowl, and I'll show you what it looks like here. This is Abby's bowl. Okay? Brooke looks at that, and you know what the words that are going to come out of her mouth? That's not fair. Isn't that true? Have your kids never done that? <laughs> you get perfect kids. Okay? 
But see, here's the tension. Abby over here, who, who got the better ice cream. She's on top. She's kind of winning. At that moment, do you realize she really doesn't care about fairness? She won. She got the prize, the better ice cream. But if Brooke, who feels like there's been an injustice, it's not fair, she can get upset and she can get angry. And matter of fact, she could move to an attitude like this. Abby got it. I'm going to get mad and I'm going to get even. I'm going to toss the ice cream off the table or whatever you do. But there's this attitude within the flesh that goes, we want fairness, we want justice. And if we really don't even get that, we can even go, you know what, I'm going to get even or I'm going to get ahead. You see where the flesh takes us. Let me give you a truth out of this passage. If you're taking sermon notes, and this is a hard reality. The biblical truth here that Jesus is communicating, real love is willing to set aside justice and fairness. And we don't like this, living in this world. Now, the text here begins with a similar phrase. You have heard that it was said. See, Jesus is coming along and he's saying, guys, there is a new way of living, a new way of thinking. If you're going to live within the kingdom of heaven, this is going to be different than what the world says. And then he goes on in these 11 verses and he deals with how and he gives examples of how we're going to have to live differently. But there's a broader application here i got to bring in at this point because the application for the morning, I would, I would define it like this for your notes. We are called to love others without boundaries. Without boundaries. But oftentimes, we choose to love based on circumstances. For example, someone encourages me. It's easy to turn around and love them. Someone treats me with respect. It's easy to turn around and give that other person respect and honor. But if someone hurts me, within the nature, the old self, what we believe is that we have a right then to limit our love toward that other person or reject it altogether. We put those boundaries up and say, I don't have to love you. Look how Jesus jumps in and challenges that. Verse 38, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, what is, why does he use the word eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? What's he referring to there? I understand that he quotes, there's kind of a term called the law of retaliation in the Old Testament, found in three passages, Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. I'll just read out loud. I don't have it on the screen. 21:24 says this, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, burn for a burn, wound for a wound, bruise for a bruise. Now, we hear this in the Old Testament. We go, what was Moses getting at here? Isn't, it just shows that the Old Testament's kind of archaic, isn't it? 
But, but catch this. Moses understood people. And there was a wisdom here because in actuality, this law was intended toward the first, it was really the first step of giving mercy. Because he knew that when retaliation began to take place, that people just don't get even, they get ahead. So what? someone takes an eye, you know what we want? We don't want one eye. We want two eyes. We want two eyes. See, just watch as people react to evil and when Christ is in central. When people are wrong, all of a sudden we bring the family in to retaliate, or other friends in to kind of up the ante, to, to go after, in, in, a, in a sense, that other person. Someone steals their coat or maybe the cell phone today, and let's just take their whole house. I read a source that said this, without the law of retaliation, revenge comes from the individual, goes from the individual to the family, to the clan, to the tribe, and ultimately to whole nations. And I think he's right. And Jesus comes along and he says, guys, let me show you a different way. Let go of justice and fairness. And then he begins to give four examples of how that applies here. But let me give you the first principle again. Kind of zero and hone in on this. Number one for your notes, if you're taking notes. A disciple of Christ must be willing to give up their rights and must love without boundaries and to live to live within the kingdom of heaven. Give up our rights. But see these phrases, I demand justice. That isn't fair. They're taking advantage of me. Jesus shoots those phrases and he buries them in this text. For example, 39 there again. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And you go, that sounds really unfair. It sounds unwise. Does that mean if someone hits us in the ribs, we should turn around and let them hit him on the opposite side? Is that what he's saying here? But here's where we got to catch this. It's not talking about physical violence here. Now, this passage was one that a teacher of mine in seminary and in a hermeneutics class actually dug into one of the first nights we met together. And the teacher, his name was Bob Stein. He worked so hard to help us understand the interpretation of Scripture in light of genres and forms of literature. When you think of poetry and proverbs and stories and history letters, they're all that you got to be careful how you interpret them. But but they that culture had great ability to use um, literary terms and ideas to communicate. Far more than I think we do today, actually. So there was exaggeration, there was overstatement. So their, their skills were really honed in communicating because they were such an oral culture. But he pointed this out to me, I remember in that class. He said, why does it say the right cheek? Well, here's what I discovered. About, normally about, normally about 90% of the people are right-handed. Okay, so if I slap somebody on the right cheek, what do I have to do if I'm right-handed? I got to go this way. You go backhanded. You see, this 
symbol, it was a symbol of, of, of a kind of a slap on the back, which is really a form of insulting people. It was really for referring to words that were of insults to you. So what's Jesus saying? He says, when someone insults us, let it go. Turn the other cheek and let him do it again. It's not going to hurt you. See, but in that sense, we're invited to give up the right of justice and fairness and we give up the right to retaliate and not insult them back. And that's the flesh going, no, we got to justice. I got to come back with them if somebody insults me. But look at the next example, verse 40. And if someone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now understand that the, there was an outer garment and an inner garment, and the tunic was that which is actually next to the skin. So if you got rid of both, Jesus is saying, let him have both. Okay, you can see the overstatement here a bit. It's that, guess what? You'd be naked. Okay? So they understood that. But you know what? Our flesh still comes back and says, I got my rights. Justice. Retaliate. Now, Jesus acknowledges, by the way, here, when he uses that word suit, he knows that there's a conflict between some people and that it even can go to court at times for the disputes. But what's he really saying here? He's saying this, humble yourself. Begin by admitting that there's trouble between the two of you. But rather than demand justice and fairness, show love. Go the extra mile. Love doesn't have boundaries. It doesn't go out there and stop for some reason, even when we're in court. And understand to the Jew, this would have made them seethe, the statement. And they would jump out of their seats and say, wait a minute. Jesus, don't you remember Exodus 22? See, in Exodus 22, there was a law that you only could take the outer garment. You couldn't have the tunic. You had no right to it. Why? Because they were, they'd be naked then. But what's Jesus saying here? Give up the rights. Give up, give in to the law of love. See, functionally, practically, don't be angry. Don't be bitter. Don't retaliate. Instead of defending themselves, seek reconciliation. Love the other, even if the other is doing it with wrong motives. Give grace, love, compassion. You see how this passage is just so challenging. Look at verse 41. And if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, what's he talking about here? There was a little rule in the culture in that time where, you understand, the Romans were kind of in charge of Israel at the time, and a Roman soldier had the right to come up to you and say, Ken, here's my backpack. You've got to carry it for a mile. I need a rest. You've got to walk with it. And, and the law basically said this, you are responsible for carrying his backpack for a mile. And that meant, if you were going this direction, he wanted to go this direction, that you had to go where he wanted to go. And then you could set it down, and you were free from any obligation at that point. So do you catch what he's saying there? 
Someone steps on your rights. Someone that you don't like even, like the Roman soldiers. Go a second mile. Show them the love of God. And the, you know, the Israelites hated the Roman government. And Jesus saying, give up your rights for the sake of the kingdom, for the gospel. Give up the rights for the time and the energy to go down a path you knew that you were gonna, it was going to take extra time for you. The hard part for us, we want things to be easy and not difficult. Look at verse 42, keep going here. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Uh, I, want, I want to put up a verse on the screen. Deuteronomy 15 there. Look how it reads. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against the poor brother. See, there was this issue of when there's poor people along, they could come up and, and say, can I borrow money from you? I, I need some help. Now, I, I want to... See, this really gets into the attitude of what do we do with our money? See, he's taking another step, not just time and forgiveness, but he's going, how about your money? Here's our challenge. We earn our money and we go, it's mine. It's my right to do with my money with what I wanted to do. But let me push it farther here, how he was pushing it. Look at Deuteronomy 15.9. I'll put it on the screen there again. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. Now, now you catch this, what's going on, that they had this system where certain years, the seventh year would come around, and it was called the year of release. So if you had borrowed some, if I had borrowed something from you, you were required to let go of that debt at that year of release. And, And what's he warning them of here? It's this, someone comes to you and wants to borrow money in year six. And you know, they're never going to be able to pay me back before it's released. So I'm going to step back and I'm going to ignore them. Because you know what? I know I'm not going to get my money back. See, see what's he saying here to us? How does it apply to us? Give up the right that my money's my money. See, love without boundaries shows compassion even in the financial world. Love isn't tight-fisted. Love without boundaries gives without expecting anything back. As I was pondering this one, I go, I just can't help but wonder if this might be the hardest one for us. We live in such an affluent culture, and yet we're so tight-fisted. See, but it's the willingness to set aside the rights and fairness, and the call to love. But let me jump to the next section here. 
Verse 43 starts again with, you, you see that, you have heard that it was said. The sixth response here, a different way of living to a new kind of standard here again. To live under, within the kingdom and under the reign of God. But look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, the word neighbor there is a wide word. It's not literally your neighbor next door. It would include everyone. And they would have understood this because they would have understood it in light of the Samaritans as one group of people. So Jesus is pushing them. This is your neighbor. And the Romans that were there as well. See, love your neighbors, your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, even the Romans. So I, I suspect they would have been, some of them, they would have been gritting their teeth and going, how dare you tell us this? But here's what we need to acknowledge. The ability to love our enemies, that those that are against us, it's hard. It's hard. And Jesus comes along and said, instead of hating them, pray for them. Pray for them. Now why? I think it's this. Is that when we bow before God, and, and when we develop that posture of prayer, of giving our requests to God, it really is functionally this. We're acknowledging that God, when I ask, you are then in control you're the one that has to work in the other person's life. But it's so easy for us. We have enemies out there. Let's just avoid thinking about them. Let's not even pray for them. We'd rather have them have vengeance and things would go bad for them. But prayer opens it up and saying, God, you're in control. You're the person that needs to change their hearts and their minds and their wills. God changes our hearts when we pray. I think that's the bottom line there. And we see their needs even. But if we hold on to anger and we don't, aren't willing to pray, you know what we turn into? We turn into judge and jury at that point. I have the right to decide that they're evil and I'm going to withhold them and create a boundary and I will not love them and it's justified. And Jesus is saying, sorry, doesn't work. Now, I, I do have to pause and just acknowledge this, that when you think about enemies, and even in our world, it could be a spouse, it could be a child, it could be a parent, it could be a co-worker, it could be somebody that we know, a neighbor. They can be a type of enemy for us. And this applies to us to love them. But look at verse 45. So that you may be sons of the Father. If you do this, you'll be sons of the Father. Does this mean we lose our standing before God if we don't do it? And the answer is no. But what is Jesus doing here? He's inviting the crowd, he's inviting us to become like his Father. Matter of fact, I want to put up on the screen Ephesians 
There's a phrase in here that's so critical. Uh, It talks about us knowing the love of God. Look how it reads in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And then there's this that that you, the purpose, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, that's a place where we begin to take on the characteristics of God and we actually begin to love people who are evil just like God. And, matter of fact, when you think of evil people looking at God, they're shaking their fists at Him and God still loves them. We take on His character. But let me show you how to push it even a little farther. Look at 46 and 47. For if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Can I give you the principle, that application here? I think what Jesus is doing, number two, and he's forcing us to do it, we need to stop the self-deception and estimation of our ability to love. What he's doing, he's holding up a mirror. And he's saying, guys, it, it, it's not cutting. What you're doing is not cutting it. See, the measure of maturity and a transformed life is not whether we can love those that are easy to love. Do we catch that? But it's rather, it's the ones that are hard. That is the measure of our transformation. You know what? It's easy to love my kids. But if I only love my kids, that function is loving with boundaries. And that which is easy. And he's saying loving people who are easy really just doesn't count a whole lot. Why? Tax collectors do that. Gentiles that don't even know me do that. But I think for us, the the challenge, our flesh calls us to pull away from people, to avoid people. Those people over there are doing certain sins, so let's just stay away from them and avoid them. Let's Let's just not think about them. How about that? And then we can kind of pat ourselves in the back and feel pretty good because, you know, I'm loving Bethany and Andy. And go, no. The call to the kingdom is dealing with people in this world who aren't very nice. That's love without boundaries. And we can't shut these people out of our lives. But it's more convenient just to love my kids and love people at church. But when we get up the next day and we bump into people we don't like, let's just go down another aisle. Avoid them. To be a disciple of Christ, to live within the kingdom, says that we have to deal with those people that have hurt us. They may be our enemies. Love has to be demonstrated. And then maybe the gospel can come in. 
But see, this is a radical living where we give love and we pray to do acts of kindness to our enemies. Why? Because God does them. See, He gives rain on the sun, on both evil and good people. What's happening there? You know what? God is blessing people and we are called to bless people whether they're good or whether they're evil. One author said it this way, they're our enemy, we don't like them, kill them with love. It's a good way to put it. But, but I think, don't we need to confess as followers of Christ that oftentimes we look to distance ourselves from people who are hard to love when it's not convenient? You see the depth of this. Look at verse 48, last verse here. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, what's the application? I believe it's this. It's summarizing all six of these different behaviors that he's trying to change in attitudes. Application number three for your notes. We're to be like Jesus or our heavenly Father. And this is hard. This is a command form. This is really not an option for us. Can it's a good idea to be like God? It doesn't say that. It says, be like God. Take on the Father's qualities, as Jesus was, is saying. He wants us to have the power to become initiators of love without boundaries. See, the goal of Christianity is not to be some nice Christian that sins once in a while and then we learn to get over that sin really quickly. The goal of Christianity, one of the goals, is to be filled to the fullness of God, to be perfect as our Father in heaven is imperfect. And then we kind of defend, oh, I can never do that. That's impossible to do that. And yet here's the challenge. With the power of God, that is possible. Now here's a reality that kind of to come to a close here. It isn't possible by just deciding tomorrow morning to get up and say this, you know what, today I'm going to love my enemies. I'm going to make it happen. And and I would say this, there's no amount of teaching that can motivate us enough just to set aside justice and fairness and to love our enemies. It, It can only come by God. But it isn't passivity either. Because it's not sitting around in a circle holding hands and singing kumbaya. Okay, God, give me power. It's not that. Matter of fact, let me show you a text again. I've used it before, but it is so critical. It's a picture of Jesus from 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at how it reads. I think it's on the screen there. But how is it to your credit? If you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. What's this calling? It's suffering here. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. You understand right there, he put away justice and fairness to the ultimate degree. See, instead, look at this phrase. He entrusted himself 
to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and that we would live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You catch just what happened here. Jesus, hanging on the cross, had to give himself to the Father. He had to entrust himself to his Father in heaven. And you know the result of that? Let me put it on the screen from Luke 23. Here's a picture of him on the cross. Two other men. Both criminals were also let out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, so the picture, you remember he had to carry it part way, and they get to that place where they put him on this hill, and he's hung on this cross. And they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus is hanging there. And these words are recorded. He looks down at this crowd of people that are crucifying him, and he says this, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they are doing. The magnitude of this, the son had to entrust himself to his father to obtain the power not to revile him, not to call down fire and say, you are out of here, I'm going to kill you. The son of God had to entrust himself so he could utter the words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, what they're doing. See, if we are going to let go of justice, if we're going to let go of fairness, if we're going to be able to love our enemies and bless them and love without any kind of boundaries, we must receive the power of God. And by doing it starts with us, entrusting ourselves. It's an act of our will of saying, God, I will trust you. You are good. You are powerful. You are in control. This is a releasing of my rights and my independence and saying, God, you are my life. That's our part. And are we willing to do that? To actually entrust hard things in our lives to the Father. And then He gives us the power to love without boundaries. But I, I have to pause here, and maybe there's people here today, you know what, you're going, I don't know about this. And maybe there's people who have never really bowed before God for the first time and said, I want to give my life to you. I recognize that I've been in control of my lives. And if that's you, I would invite you to do that today. God wants to work in your life. But if you're a follower of Christ, you made that decision for him to follow him. Guess what? We must begin on an ongoing basis to entrust our lives to him fully. You see, there really, in one sense, is a couple options here. On one side, that we can be filled to the fullness of God and actually live a different way. Or we can go in this world and not entrust ourselves to the Father and just kind of walk through life and go, it's the way it is. I, I can never try or not. You know, I'm just going to give up loving people. And you go, no. See, the heart of Jesus saying, bow before the Father. Give Him your life. 
entrust to him. Take his mercies that are new every morning and love without limits. That's what he's inviting us today to, toward. And it's so hard. I think of people that you struggle with and to say that pastors don't do that would be a lie. But how do we wake up tomorrow morning and say, God, if you bring somebody into my life that I'm struggling with, would you give me the power to bless them, to say hi to them, to honor them, give them respect? And when that happens, when that happens, even to the world of people that don't know Christ, when we do that, there's something changes where the Holy Spirit uses it and it begins, it's so winsome. When we love without boundaries, it is winsome to the world and they look at us and they go, I don't know why you're loving me. And then the opportunities come. I'm going, you know what? It's because God died. The Son died for me. The Son died for me. Can we entrust ourselves this week to the Father where he changes us, that when insults comes and hard things comes, we, we can put away the justice, we can put away the fairness, and we can love without boundaries. Let's stand and pray.